The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. They say when we are faced with tragedy that often we tell the stories until we don't need to tell them anymore. So let me remind you of mine from this anniversary that we've just walked through, are walking through. Twenty years ago, I was one month into a new settled ministry in a commuter suburb of New York City. I drove to work with the windows down that morning because it was one of those gorgeous, crisp fall days with bright blue skies. Once in the office, the face of the administrator alerted me immediately that something was wrong and the phone calls began. There was an enormous amount of grace that day. School had started in many of the local towns, and so there were a lot of people who would have been in the towers who were not yet there because they wanted to see their kids off on the bus that morning. My sister-in-law was late to work that day. A cousin who worked on one of the lower floors in the Wall Street Journal offices at the second tower that was hit, made it out after the first was struck. He tells of people waving them back in, saying to him and his colleagues as they streamed out, it's okay guys, it was the other tower that was hit, you're safe, you can go back in. Luckily they didn't. There were many folks we didn't hear from for a while, right, because the cell coverage was out. That cousin and a son of two of our members were among the people who walked home, these two, to their Brooklyn apartments miles and miles across bridges and finally home to panicked, grieving loved ones. He's safe, Vanessa. The call came at 5 p.m., and all day, people emerged at the local train station, shell-shocked and ghost-like, covered in their suits of white ash, chaplains and family members and neighbors tracking who returned and who didn't. Nine fathers would not return home to the town where the church was. Nine families would be among the thousands of casualties that day. None of the fathers were members of our congregation, but they were friends and neighbors and colleagues. And you all know, none of us escaped. That day, the sense of what we lost and would lose just began. There was the small loss, for a while at least, of a trust of crisp blue fall days. The loss of a sense that life is necessarily safe and predictable. I mean, we all know that we're not invulnerable, but even so, we lost a piece of our invulnerability that we didn't know we thought we had, many of us, when this enormous evil hit home. We saw with new eyes our world, and as Richard named in his reflection, what it was was hard to see. 
when all the lives from the planes and the Pentagon and the World Trade Center were finally counted. It was 2,977 people. But by now, the count has to include the approximately 2,000 people who are estimated so far to have died from complications that resulted from them breathing in what was in the air in the days afterwards as part of the rescue efforts. And then there were the 2,400 U.S. military personnel who lost their lives in the 20-year war in Afghanistan and the nearly 50,000 Afghan civilians who died, let alone all those injured and maimed. There was more, the loss of freedoms, probably more of our privacy than we know. We lost the opportunity costs of all the resources spent on war that could have been spent on improving human lives. We lost a piece of our nation's soul in places like Abu Ghraib. So much to remember and to hold, right? We stand now on what was and is a long road of coming to terms with what happened to us then, a long journey of figuring out what healing would look like, navigating how we would find our way back from what happened and coming to terms with how it would change us, these new eyes. We were forever adjusting our vision to what they forced us to see, offered us to see. A big piece of the journey has been, always is, about weathering grief, all the layers of it. The Reverend Gwen Burens, John Burens' wife, Erica's mom, and one of my mentors, a wise woman, described it really truthfully and succinctly to me once when she said, at first, what's striking about grief is how it defines you entirely. It's all you can think about, how it's what you wake up to and what you go to bed at night clutching, how it, it's true that ultimately it never goes away. But it does, she said, morph over time until it becomes a part of you. How one day you aren't only the person who lost their spouse or a loved one in the attacks of September 11th, though you will always be that person in part. You become the person who lost someone they loved that day and the one who leads the annual food drive at church, and works with others who've lost loved ones, and even laughs at the family reunion when the charades game goes off the rails. It takes time to make that transition, more so the more intimate the loss. But that's often how it goes if you make your way through it. And there are some things that help us get there. Decades ago, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It chronicles his struggles emotionally, theologically, 
with a son who was diagnosed just after that son's third birthday with a condition called progeria, or rapid aging. The diagnosis meant that their son would never grow to be more than about three feet in height, would never grow hair on his head, would look like a small old man while he was a child, and would die in his teens. All of this bore out in the years to follow. Having grown up and been taught an image of God who was all wise and powerful and protective and loving, none of that would make sense to Kushner. And because it didn't, he was forced to begin this journey of seeking a new understanding of suffering. Early on, the, one of the first things he realized was the need to reject the notion, any of it, that suffering or evil was punishment or that it ever happens for any God-given reason or purpose. Instead, he thought, maybe God wasn't the one who caused suffering, but the force of life, however that shows up, however we know and name that, that suffers with us, that journeys with us through suffering, suffering that is brought on as it almost always is by human error or evil or natural disasters or natural processes, aging or the mutation of a virus. Kushner also started to gather up what else helps bring us through, companions us through suffering to the place where it's just a piece of us. And you know, in rereading all that he writes, all that he comes to, I was thinking that this list was and is probably just the same collection of things through time. And how I was going to stand this morning, and you were going to be here in body or spirit in the home of a religious community that's been around since 1850, someplace in this city. And I couldn't help but think about the fact of all the things that all of our people have weathered. I mean, just the wars, <laughs> the Civil War, the war to end all wars, and the war that followed. Korea and Vietnam, two major earthquakes, the plague of 1918, HIV and AIDS, pandemic, to name just a few, and all of the upending of lives and seemingly unprecedented suffering they all felt and that isn't even to name the intimate, private sufferings of losses and accident and illness that they each had. To my calculation, every generation since this congregation has been founded has borne witness to catastrophic loss of some kind. And every generation has had to find a way through to a place where grief was a piece of them, but not all that defined them. You 
Yesterday, I gave a prayer to open the 11 o'clock shift, one of three, at a community event that was down at the Palace of Fine Arts that by the end of the day looked like they were on track to package together 200,000 dinners to be delivered by the San Francisco Marin Food Bank. It was part of 9-11 efforts that happened all across the country yesterday and that the organizer said now made September 11th the biggest day of community service in our nation annually. A day that started with evil. And yesterday when I ran by to grab a stole to wear at that event, the door was opened for me by someone I did not recognize, who it turned out was a volunteer from San Francisco, from Impact SF, because they were here to lead at cost, meaning we hosted them, this self-defense training for women that they're famous for that not only helps women, and I suppose they train men to protect themselves, but also has been shown to promote deep healing for those who have suffered from attack or abuse. And this person who greeted me at the door, I don't know, they just awakened me to the fact that I think we're in a thaw, that life is coming back to our limbs. And our children and some of our choir are back today in a careful calculus of risk that makes me a little nervous, but also I really do want to be back in community. And it made me think that part of what I think pulls us human beings through, through all the ages and catastrophes that we will suffer, that we have suffered, is present in all of these things I just named and so many others. It's this stubborn human spirit, but I would say religious spirit because that word religious is perfect to describe it. Because that word has, as many of you know, in its origins, the word religiare, which means to bind together. This instinct we have when the world delivers us setback to bind together, to bind up wounds, to bind up the broken places, to bind ourselves to one another. Though we can often act in ways that don't speak to just that binding, that can speak of fear and hate, that can also be a response, there is, it has to be named, this urge in the face of loss and suffering and even fear to bind up. And more of that work is certainly ahead. You can see it, right? The war in Afghanistan officially declared over recently, and so the need to bind up all the veterans who are already home, but others coming home. All we've asked them to do, the unspeakable things we've asked them to do in our name. And all the refugees with targets on their back who are lucky enough to find a way through the evacuation to now try and make home here among us. 
bind their lives back together. And as the pandemic ends, to figure out where the broken places are among us and in us and bind it up. All of this work that leads us, I think, to this place where grief is a piece of us. And one last thing. I also think in the midst of all this binding up that we need to give ourselves permission to step into beauty and the joy of life. Full-hearted again. We've learned an enormous amount in the last 20 years and in the last two. We've taken away wisdom about what matters and faith, I hope, in our own resilience and knowledge about these wellsprings inside us that maybe we didn't know existed before. And we have been reminded, right, to love deeply and to make memories because love and memories cannot ever be taken from us and to put stock in one another because that's what gets us through together. And that as we do so, we bind up all those who are hurting, don't lose sight of them. But that what pulls us through too is a love and a lust and a celebration of life. In the Jewish tradition, Kushner writes that there is this special prayer called the Mourner's Kaddish and how it's not really about death but about life and how it sings praises, surprisingly, for those of you who haven't read the words, about a world and a life that's basically good and livable, sings that in the face of grief and loss. He writes, by reciting that prayer, the mourner is reminded of all that is good, of all that is worth living for. Seeing the tragedy in the context of a whole life, keeping one's eye and mind on what has enriched you, and not only on what you have lost. So may we see with new eyes that are not afraid to seek life and see healing and possibility where loss and grief reside also. May we write the best of what we have come to know as true in these last years into the book of life this next year, into the book of our lives. May we seize joy. And in doing so, may we make a blessing of a sweet new year, not just words or prayer, but a promise to ourselves and each other that we keep. Happy New Year, everybody. Blessings. There's a good buzz in the office and on the trading floor this morning. Last night, we hosted a big conference and Diana Ross wowed the crowd. Somewhere, her song, 
I'm coming out, plays on a desk speaker. It's still dark here at 5.30 in the morning in San Francisco, but in the financial district, it's busy. Because it's 8.30 in New York City, and we always work on New York City time. Large video monitors spread around the room show the blue sky over the Hudson and over Manhattan. It's a beautiful day in New York, they say. Financial commentators drone on and on. And then it all changes. Voices grow silent and then shouts and cries and confusion. For me, a day of awareness, an awakening of some kind, a day the unthinkable became real, a day that changed my understanding of the world. To that point, I'd only felt what I'll call evil's presence in its passing, and, and maybe I thought I knew what it was, but I didn't. I think I learned something new about evil that morning, that it exists for its own sake alone. The smoke, the cries, the destruction. Now I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. Those words seem to rise from the scenes playing across the monitors. That morning, as the office erupted into confusion, I remembered a voice coming over the intercom telling us to go home to our loved ones. And as I stumbled back to the subway, seeing the faces of those unaware of what had just happened, I remember wanting to cry out, didn't you see, don't you know? And I remember how I didn't want to see and I didn't want to know. Later that day, as word came of friends, both safe and gone, I remember realizing how it is possible that another human being would intentionally kill or destroy as many and as much as possible for its own sake. And I recall the words of my grandmother Edna, something she learned and passed on from a time long before any of this, but rang just as true. She said, Richard, be careful. They'd just as soon kill you as look at you. Evil brushed my face that morning. It touched my forehead, kissed my lips, and was let loose. I think I've sensed its presence since then in legal decisions that tear mothers from children in the betrayal of trust that begins with an unwelcome touch and ends without conscience or regret, in a knee pressed deliberately to a neck without remorse as life seeps away and a crowd watches. How I wish I could tell Grandma that you're wrong. That's not true. No one thinks or acts like that, but they do again and again. But Grandma, here's what I do know to be true. In this moment, in the middle of what for many are called the days of awe, 
where both the head of the year, Rosh Hashanah, and the day of cleansing, Yom Kippur, are acknowledged and celebrated, I find renewal, safety, and hope in our temple in person again this morning or virtually. I am thankful for having made it through those fear-filled days of 20 years ago. And even though in my heart I have new fears about what is coming, I am comforted by the words of an ancient poet. You are my shepherd and I shall not want. You make me lie down in green pastures and lead me beside the still waters. You restore my soul. You guide me in straight paths for your name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life, and I will rest in your house forever. <laughs>